Hello, charter folk. This is Jed from a different location, sneaking away with the family to do uh, something of a spring break. Um, so background may look a little different to you, but um, did not want to give up this time slot because the three people that we have with us today uh, are so busy. I'm just very thankful to have been able to get time with them and uh, to be able to pick their brain about what I think is some of the most important work happening in the United States as it relates to charter schools. The three people um, are our leaders of our state associations in, in Texas, in California, and in Illinois. And I've invited the three of them because I think those states and those state associations are seen as a little bit ahead of the curve in terms of building political infrastructure for our movement. And I wanted to get an update from them and to see uh, what they would report out to uh, the rest of the country about what's a, a wise way to keep going forward with this. So we're going to bring the three of them on. And as we do, I am going to do my regular, you know, Wallace over the top raving about um, each of them, because, um, you know, it's genuine for all the folks that I have uh, here at Charter Folk. I feel great excitement about uh, what these folks are up to, and um, and yet it's even more the case, you know, today. So uh, our first person uh, is uh, is Andrew Broy, and Andrew is leading Inks uh, in Illinois. And if there's anybody in the National Charter School movement in the last ten years, I have referred to as a brother from another mother more so than I have, you know, Andrew Broy. Um, I I can't think of it. It's just uh, Andrew and I have. Um, shared so many different uh, discussions together, so many responsibilities together. We've both been on the board of the National Alliance. Uh, we've both been grappling with this challenge of building a C3 and C4. And if there's anybody in our country that is smart about this, who we can learn from, if there's anybody that I personally have learned from, you know, it's Andrew Broy. So Andrew, thank you so much for, for being here with us. Um, meanwhile, second, we have uh, Starley uh, Coleman, who is from, uh, from Texas, leading uh, the Texas uh, Charter Public School Association and uh, their C4 um, charter schools now. And uh, very excited about the work that Starley has been doing. The uh, Texas Association really made a very smart decision about six or seven years ago to really evolve itself into an advocacy obsessed organization and one that would have a C3 and a C4 capacity to it. And they needed to have, you know, an incredible leader take it on at a very important time. I think Starley has been there about three years, if I'm, if I'm right. And, you know, I would just say that, you know, the name is well chosen. You know, I think we should all try to become rock starly, you know, like the starly that we've got in Texas, you know, leading the development of our, our political infrastructure in Texas. So starly, thank you so much for being here. And finally, you know, we'll bring on Mirna Castrillon from California Charter School Association. Um, there are so many different ways I can introduce you know, um, Mirna. Uh, I don't know. I'll choose this one today, which is, you know, 12 years ago, they put they put this Dorothy, you know, in Oz um, on the first you know, brick of the yellow brick road and and said march toward um, the Emerald City of, of political power for charter schools. And, you know, I don't know where Myrna was. I don't know if she was the scarecrow, if she was the, you know, the tin, the tin woman, if she was the cowardly lion. I don't know. She was one of those first, you know, very first people who, you know, just helped me get smarter, helped me get more courageous, you know, helped me grow more heart, you know, like those three characters did. And uh, we made some progress toward, you know, the Emerald City. So, um, you know, Myrna, uh, for someone who has been there arm in arm with me, you know, lions and tires and bears for the last 12 years, I just, I'm so excited to have you here. Thank you to all three of you guys for being here. Good to be with you, Jed. Great to be here. Hello, hello. All right, cool. Well, let's just dive right into where things stand in our different states and where things stand in our associations. I'm particularly interested in um, what you guys think the the COVID challenge has done to our standing, um, and you know if there is something that is either opening up new opportunities for us or if there are new risks. Um, would love to just you know just get the lay of the land from the three of you. I don't know, Starley. Would you mind going first for us from Texas? Sure. Um, you know, it's, it seems like, um, COVID has, um, reminded lawmakers why families need options in the first place that, that the same thing doesn't work for, for every family for a whole variety of reasons. Um, so that's helpful. 
uh, you know, to 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 um, refresh people on on the principles and the needs to give families um, choices. I don't know that. Um, you know, I don't know what it's like, obviously, in other states, um, you know, a good chunk of the schools in Texas, even the, the district schools opened on time and in person here in Texas, and most charter schools did as well. So, um, you know, the, most of our kids are, are back on campuses in Texas. That said, there's still, you know, a whole lot of kids who are, you know, missing, which I, I know that that is a, a situation in other states. There was a little surge in charter enrollment this year. I don't know if that'll be permanent or not, you know, just unsure, of course, what will happen when everybody's back on on campuses full time um, next fall. Um, you know, but I but I do I do think there um, there is a you know, there's just a renewed focus, I think, on on innovative practices and, of course, getting, you know, charters to lean in on that and lead the way um, is a, you know, is an opportunity, of course, that we that we shouldn't miss. Um, I don't but I don't know. I would be curious what what Andrew and Myrna have to say about that too. Certainly in Texas, like our school leaders were drinking from a fire hose trying to accommodate all of the changes that came from COVID. And they, you know, they just were not in the headspace of like, okay, wow, things could be really different now. How how can we um, you know, blow the doors off of innovation? That that just was not the headspace they were in. Um, and I, I mean, if I if I had been in their shoes that that certainly is not where where I would have been thinking um, either. But you know, uh, maybe other states are seizing that opportunity more. Thank you, Starley. Um, hey, either one, Mary, do you want to go from California? Sure, happy to. Um, I I agree with with Starley that um, when this pandemic uh, really uh, upended the entire world, um, uh, the, the the core core basics of uh, survival and providing for uh, the basic needs of families really came to the forefront. And for me, it was actually a reminder of what an important public institution charter schools are. Um, and uh, in California, as I know, it was the case throughout the, uh, the country. Uh, when I saw charter schools deploying that, that nimbleness and that flexibility, not necessarily to innovate, although I do think that there was some innovation there, uh, but actually to turn on a dime and feed entire districts that were struggling to reorient themselves to the moment and provide hotspots, Chromebooks, uh, uh, hot meals. Um, uh, even in Los Angeles, uh, uh, the district opened 60 large uh, meal distribution sites. Our charter schools, you know, 24 hours earlier opened double that amount. Um, and, uh, it, it, and, and time and again, I saw entire communities really stepping up and stay incredibly well attuned uh, to the needs of their families and their communities. Um, I've also rarely ever seen collaboration at this level. Um, while I don't think that it was necessarily the case that brand new things erupted in this moment, certainly the fact that we have as part of our family a wide diversity of of educational uh, modalities uh, and uh, in, in people connecting with, with each other to learn from each other, the blended learning schools, helping the traditional site-based schools, the non-classroom-based schools, talking about how do you actually measure engagement in distance learning and that, that openness and banding together that occurred across the state was really quite unprecedented. It's almost as if the entire movement went open source for a moment. Um, and so I think it's 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 carved a new groove for us as an association, as as a state, as a community. We just celebrated uh, our virtual conference, which typically is like the biggest gathering and celebration. And the level of engagement and joy as people were sharing ideas from the front lines and really leaned into uh, a, a very different tone and tenor around how do we come back better? How do we keep each other safe? How do we keep pushing each other? to the edge to ensure that when we come back, we don't repeat the same, certainly not mistakes, but it, it, it really, the pandemic revealed sort of our, 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 our weak spots, if you will. And how do we use uh, this, this newfound uh, energy for collaboration to fill in those cracks for each other and lift each other up? I think that's almost as innovative as a, a new pedagogical delivery. 
um, because it reminded us that our task and our work above all things is fundamentally relational. Um, and I'm looking forward to how do, do we come back? I'm, I'm sure that just like as we uh, uh, pivoted faster and better uh, into distance learning, we'll probably come back better and stronger as well uh, in this phase that reopening that in California, uh, it's not been like Texas. Uh, it's, it's highly political. Um, we're not back by by a long shot. In fact, uh, schools are just beginning to come back and we've got a long way to go. Um, but I do uh, see that um, charters are, uh, again, you know, being able to, to, to do these massive pivots more nimbly. Thank you, Myrna. Uh, Andrew, want to get right at it? Sure, uh, and I'm going to borrow from Mirna's talk. I liked her phrase um, about a new groove happening for a charter movement in California. I feel like we had a similar experience here in Illinois, and I want to focus on two discrete areas, one that doesn't get much attention and then one that does, one on autonomy and one on innovation. So one of the things that was really beneficial early on is that the governance model of chartering is that nonprofit governing boards make decisions for the school. And what that allowed us to do in March of last year, when the pandemic hit and things shut down, is convene board members and talk about how they might go forward. And I remember being on many, many, many Zoom calls with many different charter boards across Illinois and explaining how they might navigate this. And what you saw was very quick movement, very effective towards feeding their population, towards thinking about access, towards ensuring connectivity for all their families, getting devices distributed. We had a huge device distribution late in March of last year. And what all of that did was show that the charter governance model is able to move quickly and adaptively to serve student needs immediately. Meanwhile, large districts in Illinois were struggling to think about how to procure vendors or how to go through an expediter process. And the system of big school city school districts is not set up to deliver that as nimbly and as flexibly. And so that was a moment of highlight for what the charter movement can become. Uh, secondly, after uh, the long summer and some of our member schools began opening up in a hybrid fashion in the fall, we thought very hard and long about how to do it effectively and serve families both synchronously and asynchronously if they're at home. And one thing we saw a lot of our member schools do, particularly the more advanced uh, networks, is try to leverage teacher quality beyond what they've been doing before. So instead of thinking in the old frame of one teacher for every 25 students, they thought about leveraging their best, most experienced instructor in a discrete content area and having that, that teacher educate many more students and then using other teachers as learning coaches at the same time. So in some respects, we saw some innovation coming out of necessity and it sped up our movement towards trying to leverage our best teaching. But the last thing I'll say, which I've kind of witnessed personally and has really made a mark in my mind, is just how much we've been able to expand our blended learning models and some of our virtual learning. We've had schools doing this for many, many years in Chicago and downstate, but it wasn't until this pandemic occurred that many more schools benefited from their learnings. So it's kind of forced uh, some knowledge across the movement in ways that really live up to the charter movement's ideal of sharing best practices, leveraging what works, and centering all decisions around the benefits of students. And because of all that, I think there has been some real opportunity to be more effective and then hopefully spread these ideas beyond just charter public schools and towards public schools more broadly. So I love you guys using that language, Groove. I certainly have been talking for a long time. You know, in 2018, 2019, um, there were some political dynamics that were beginning to congeal in many different parts of the country that were not as favorable for charter schools as we had seen before. Um, and COVID has come along. And I, th I also think some of those dynamics were ready to calcify into ways that could have stayed in place for a decade or longer, who knows? And it just feels like COVID has come along and wiped all of the you know things that were potentially congealing off the map and giving us a chance to lay new grooves and uh, and some of them i think are, are already starting to emerge and i think they're really quite quite positive 
um, I think one of the things that the, the one piece of data that I found most confusing was the Education Next poll that said that parents actually weren't frustrated with their schools or with their unions or with you know others from the establishment. I just had another conversation with another national polling entity last week, and they were like, no, 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 we have found out that's not the case. So then, you know, they're supposedly going to report some data that reflects my own personal experience over and over and over again, different states, different organizations, that the public is uniquely irritated, uniquely disappointed in what our public education system is doing. There's some some oblique understanding that maybe charter schools are doing something different. And so that opens up a level of opportunity now in 21 that just simply wasn't there in 2019. Uh, I, don't, I don't know, I wanna jump to the next thing, but does anybody wanna jump in on that, that, that specific way of thinking about it? Because I can go straight to you know my, my my topic at hand, which is you know your guys' political infrastructure, and you know how you think it's helped you. Because for all three of your states, you know if, if if I were asked how is you know the fact that you've got more mature political infrastructure helped you in the last year, I just think there's some like stories that just absolutely pop. But mm -hmm. you guys tell mm -hmm. them better than me. You know um, who wants to go first? Well, let, let, I, I'd like to get, take a swing at your at your earlier question, Jed, good, because good, I think it, it's really important to not to overcomplicate things, but also to make sure that we're not oversimplifying. Um, this is a moment of tremendous transition and people are really reacting to changes and shifts in even the scientific guidance being issued by the CDC uh, and uh, the the state of flux has created a wide array of responses that actually do anchor to um, what their experience has been in the traditional uh, system, what their current experience is. Certainly geography, race, and class play a role in it as well. And, um, and I would just simply caution that one of the things we're encountering in California where this issue of return to school has become so ridiculously politicized and polarized down to the utmost extremes, right? That, um, that we, it, it, that, that, that issues, especially about the, the, the learning experience and race and class have become weaponized for people advancing certain arguments uh, for or against reopening or in which modality that I would uh, I would really caution uh, that we need to resist that that single narrative and using uh, parent experience um, in a universalizing way for or against uh, one way or the other. What we are seeing is that there's a, a collection of 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 um, uh, complicated experiences uh, that have to do with, for example, if the students are and the families are essential workers, have they experienced the death in the family? Um, what, uh, how, to what degree uh, has the charter school been really strong and good at at building a network of support uh, for for families, uh, like parent to parent tutoring, uh, access to counselors and mental health professionals, and that conditions their experience and their willingness to go back in person in this moment. Um, there's a lot of fear mongering, uh, a lot of people that claim that they are on the side of data um, mm. uh, and science. And, uh, and, and and we have to be very careful that that doesn't get weaponized in ways that are counterproductive to what the mission and the orientation of the charter schools uh, are. Um, there are a number of charter schools have done such a good job of building community that their families, even if they are serving essential workers and you know uh, the most vulnerable, are hesitant to return. Um, because they 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 lost grandma and and they lost auntie and they don't necessarily want to rush back and and there are others who are so frustrated in the traditional public school system in particular especially if they're special ed students and haven't been able to access any kind of supports and they watch their children regressing uh, significantly um, that they are desperate to go back even if it means uh, a, a certain risk tolerance that it's a different kind of profile I I, I our, our advice to all of our schools uh, has simply been make sure you stay tightly aligned with your community with your families with your teachers the vaccination is here the 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 the, the rush to reopen if you will there's no question that in person is better um, but in in in, in 
uh, in either way, the, the policy arguments can't get dislocated and disconnected from people's legitimate experiences of tremendous trauma and loss in this moment. And that should be integrated into your plans for return. Sorry for the soapbox, but it's, it's frustrating here, especially in Los Angeles. Please, not the soapbox at all. Just a smart comment from Mirna Castrojon, as always. Lo love it. it. Starly or Andrew, did you want to amplify anything? My, my comment actually might be a good bridge to what you want to talk about, Jed, which is on the advocacy side. Um, so, Andrew, if you, if you were going to jump into something with something unrelated to advocacy, um, I, I just got a little bit of like COVID silver lining from some lawmakers last week that I thought, um, that I thought was, worth, was interesting and worth sharing. Yeah, at one point, uh, to underscore something Marina said, is that early on we did an analysis of where COVID was impacting families in Chicago and where our schools are. And there's a pretty heavy overlap between where our schools are geographically located and the communities hardest hit by COVID, both in terms of, of workers hardest hit and then negative health outcomes. And so when we thought about reopening and helping our member schools think through that, it was always our assumption we wanted to offer a choice to families, to say to a family, if you would like to have an in-person option or a community care option, We'll make that happen, but any student that wants to stay home for a variety of reasons will do so, and it's up to our movement to serve the student in that setting as effectively. And that put a lot of burdens on teachers and administrators to think through that, but out of that, I think, came a recognition that you had to provide that choice to a family. And what we see in districts is this either-or on-off switch problem that I think is inappropriate to, to, to the challenge right now. Amen. Love that. Um, exactly what um, I've seen in so many different places. So thank you, Andrew, for, for that. Starley, please take it away. Love to hear about silver linings here. Yeah. So so I, um, I had dinner with two separate lawmakers last week, a Democrat and a Republican. And the Republican was telling me that um, here in Texas, I don't know what it's like, you know, in, in other states necessarily right now, but the time that lawmakers are actually spending together right now like on the on the floor of the house or the senate is really limited right now um and lobbyists are not in and out of people's offices like they normally are and the you know sort of group dinners and stuff that are that normally happen during session like that's just not happening and so this was the republican telling me all of this and he he was saying that he thinks for us that that um, that sort of limited information flow, like for the charter community, is going to end up being really beneficial for us this session because charter <laughs> opponents who outnumber us, you know, everywhere, right, all over the country in every state capital, are sidelined too, right? So um, we're 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 not at such like a rumor mill disadvantage like we normally are, which I thought was really interesting. And then uh, separately, I was talking to a Democrat. Um, who said that um, for the first time ever this session, she actually took a minute to look at the one pagers that all the education groups uh, gave her of their agendas, like to like actually look at what we're writing down. And she said, you know what struck me? Your agenda is about kids and the district's agenda is about money. And I was like, wow, you noticed that. That's <laughs> cool. Well, um, so that's that's great for us, right? Like if we're if if lawmakers are starting to realize like we're down there at the Capitol trying to talk to them about kids, uh, and the other team is down there trying to talk about money, we're gonna win. Um Starly, I love all this. Can can you can you also? I'm going to prompt you on you know just you brag about you know what you guys are doing a little bit more too. I mean, you guys had a an absolutely pivotal election in 2018 as far as control of the state house goes, and your C4 was active as it had never been before. And there have been some frankly rather stunning political dynamics that have come out of that. At least you know as an observer from a national landscape, can you just just acquaint some of our viewers with what what those broad strokes look like? Yeah. So in 2020, there was a, a big play. Um, I'm 20. I'm sorry, 2020. I didn't mean 2018. I screwed that up. Sorry about that. Um, uh, so in 2020, there was a real chance, um, or, or well, we thought anyway, that there was a real chance that um, Democrats would uh, take the Texas House. So that would have been the first time in 20 years that um, one of the chambers would have been controlled by, by Democrats. It was like a, 
you know, eye popping amounts of money spent um, to 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 try to flip the Texas house. And, um, you know, we uh, it, the, the charter community in Texas, you know, we, we have just, um, you know, really re relied on Republicans being in charge for such a long time. Um, and we, we just have not built that bench of support that we needed to build with Democrats. We have a, you know, we have a good handful of, of supporters in the Democratic caucus, but not nearly where we need to be if they were going to be in charge. Um, so that was a, that was a really scary moment for us because, um, you know, we, uh, when, you know, when I got here, I just kept telling people, we, you know, we just need a little bit more time <laughs> before that demographic trend that's happening in Texas becomes our reality. We just weren't ready for that. So, um, so, uh, in 2020, um, we, we needed to figure out what our lane was going to be because there was so much money um, sloshing around uh, on both sides in Texas. Be, you know, Republicans trying to keep the House, Democrats trying to win the House and all, and all of that stuff that we, we needed to try to figure out what we were going to do, where we were going to try to make an impact. And what we decided to do was focus on people who are connected to charter schools. So charter school parents, grandparents and educators and staff members. Um, that we could find, um, connect them, you know, to the voter file, uh, figure out where they live. Um, and, and if they were in one of those house districts that were in play um, to, you know, to, to make sure that they knew the difference between the candidates on, on charter issues. We weren't always aligned with Republicans, of course, because the, our, our issue doesn't break down that way. Um, there were, you know, a handful of seats where the Democrat was better for us on charters um, than, than the Republican. And certainly in the primaries, that's, um, you know, Lots of pro-charter Republicans, anti-charter Republicans, pro-charter Dems, anti-charter Dems on both sides. Um, but but we we had a we had a really successful outing um, in the 2020 elections. You know, the, the vast majority of the races where um, where where the charter the Texas Charter Pack engaged um, the the pro-charter candidate won, and um, and among charter connected voters, we saw that we were able to like pretty significantly swing. Uh, people to vote for the pro-charter candidate, even if it wasn't someone um, that they normally would align with, like with party-wise. So it was a it was a big deal for us, um, and that caught a lot of lawmakers' attention. Of course, like when when we can show them that we can make charters a voting issue for people in their district, um, and we can you know can can convince people to vote outside of their party preference simply on a candidate's position on charter issues. Um, that changes the conversation at the Capitol in a hurry uh, for 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 lawmakers. That's great. Thank you, um, Starley. I mean, I, I've learned over and over again, don't stress too much linearity, right? Uh, there's all sorts of things that are going on. But historically, you've had a, a governor, a lieutenant governor who've been supportive, but not willing to take extra steps. And now you've got a governor and a lieutenant governor who are making some of your priorities at the association amongst their top priorities as well, which could really translate into uh, accelerated growth for charter schools in, in Texas. Oh, no, no uh, doubt about that. Yeah, the, the two like sort of two roadblocks that we have um, to charter growth right now are both uh, the lieutenant governor who runs our Senate um, and the governors on their short list of priorities. like to remove our roadblocks, um, which is pretty cool. Pretty amazing. Andrew, take a run at it. You told me some great anecdotes already from, from Chicago and from, from Illinois more broadly. Yes, yeah, so our political environment is a bit different than Starley's, as you might imagine, <laughs> Texas and Illinois are different states. Um, we are a blue state and every statewide elected official is a Democrat in Illinois and the Democratic Party controls both chambers, the House and Senate by supermajorities. Um, so we really have to work with and through our Democratic Party leadership to move things. Uh, we've been a bipartisan PAC and political organization since our inception. But we noticed something about six or seven years ago that there were certain Democrats who represented districts that had a heavy charter presence. Literally thousands of families were attending high quality charter public schools in those districts. And some of those Democrats, not all, but some weren't very supportive of the charter issue in Springfield. And so we went about designing a plan and the strategy to first get those uh, individuals in the schools to see them and hear from their constituents and talk to the grandmas and the moms and the aunties all across uh, their district about why they chose this school and why it was a great choice for their child. And then after that, uh, kind, of, kind of 
general policy work. We started doing political work in the 2016 cycle, in the primary cycle, similar to what Charlie just described. So we identified uh, charter households. Uh, we identified from the voter file how many uh, proven voters there were in those households, looking at the last two or three election cycles. And we defined our proven voters voting the last two of three election cycles. And then we did a range of uh, kind of outreach and mail and, and door knocking and phone calls to those households to try to persuade them why one candidate was better than the other candidate. Now, uh, many states uh, have a legislative process that draws maps that tends to favor the party in power. Uh, Illinois is not an exception there. Uh, the 2010 map tended to favor Democratic control. And so most of the action in these highly charter-intensive districts was in the primary cycle. So we had many different races where you had an incumbent Democrat running who might not have been good for charter schools and a challenger who was good. And so our ability in these generally low turnout primary election cycles to leverage the votes of say 2,000 or 1,500 charter households in a way that provided several thousand votes could be dispositive in several races. And so we really made our reputation in 16 by winning a handful of primary races and replacing incumbents. And because those tended to be safe democratic districts, you didn't have to worry too much about the general election in the fall. And so slowly, brick by brick, we built up more and more Democratic support in the Black Caucus, particularly for charter schools in Chicago. Uh, and then we just built on that year over year. And so every, every cycle, we're, we're engaged, we're active. We've now launched a new effort effective January this year to recruit and train the next generation of political leader. And those are going to be charter school alumni. We have a large number of charter alums now who are in their late 20s, early 30s, getting active in politics. And a bunch of them have raised their hand and said, we want to run for office. Can you help us? And we're not one to shy away from a challenge. So we've launched our Inks Action Fellowship and Campaign School program. And we're going to seek to have 15 to 20 charter alums selected by May, trained by this fall, and then actively campaigning for office in 2022, general and primary, and the 2023 municipal elections which is the city of Chicago elections, where every alderman's up, the mayor's up, and we may have other races that matter to us. And so in my view, if you want to build long-term policy influence in a state capital, you've got to do this political work. It's not optional. It's indispensable. And you can start small and build over time, and the lessons you learn along the pathway just make you more effective and better as a practitioner going forward. There's, no, there's nothing that can replace really strong political work in terms of getting legislative results in the state capital. Thank you, Andrew. Awesome. Mirna, what would you most want to highlight about latest political work and dynamics in California? Well, um, well, the story of California really, um, you know, obviously there was a massive pivot in 2018 that brought, I'm going to one up you, Andrew, you have a super majority. We had a giga majority. Uh, and, um, <laughs> you know, like 80% Democrats, basically. Um, and so, you know, the dynamics over here, we're, we're not just blue, we're Navy or Indigo. I don't know, like what's darker than dark uh, in, in the blue spectrum. And, um, it, and we all know what happened, right? Uh, labor, uh, a unified front of labor took on not just us, but tech, you know, on with AB5 and eliminating the gig economy and, uh, and, and the effects of that, uh, were, were very much felt very immediately for us. It forced us to uh, some compromises that were by a long shot, um, uh, not death, but not great. <laughs> uh, and we were marked for death uh, with, without question. Um, and uh, But something really curious happened uh, in the 2020 election, and that is that California swung back slightly to center. Um, uh, the the Republicans gained some seats in the in the legislature. Six additional Republicans uh, went to the congressional delegation. Um, labor uh, actually advanced numerous initiatives. I think it was five initiatives that they were backing. Three that they were funding primarily that went down to defeat, including the school bond. Like who votes against school bonds when we have a falling infrastructure in a blue state? And, um, you know, you can't overread that, but I do believe that it was 
a correction of sorts. And uh, and right now we are in a position of playing defense. Uh, we, we we haven't swung back to the place where we say we are where we can see a very uh, we're, the threat is not over. First of all. Uh, divide and conquer is our our, our opponent's preferred uh, method of attack, and that is to to separate the family: non-classroom-based schools versus site-based schools, urbans versus suburbans, and rurals. Um, and the biggest part of our task is keeping the family together and aligned and voting together across party lines and across typologies, right? But it is a game of defense right now. Um, it, the, the 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 politics are ridiculous. Uh, 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 Gavin Newsom, who danced to the finish line in, 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 in the 2018 election, is facing a recall. It is an almost certainty that he will be, um, that, that the recall will be on the ballot. Um, and a lot of that has to do with basically, um, uh, of course, there, it, it's the pandemic. There's a, a, a reaction to that. That, as I was talking about it, at the top, a, a real confusion around: do, do 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 teacher unions stand for the public good, or are they protecting you know teachers who want to stay home? Which is a massive oversimplification of what's happening. But that's a public narrative out there. Um, uh, the speed of the vaccine rollout, the shutdowns. We are still shut down uh, for the most part, and that is. You know that is that is that is um, uh, it, it, it's extracting a political price from Democrats, and there are a number of moderates and independents who are basically saying it is not healthy to have a single party rule at any level, whether it's local government or or at the highest levels of state government, and are yearning to send a message of sorts. Um, the reality of it is is that. Elections are big and sexy. They're also ridiculously expensive in big states like Illinois, Texas, and California. Um, and while we continue to uh, be very active with PACs and, and, and independent expenditures, it's also true that given our political condition, we've gotten smarter at guerrilla warfare and retail politics. Um, and what that means is it's not just about winning the elections. Let's not also forget that the care and feeding of members through consistent constituent service and and, and, and ongoing donations to their re-elections campaigns, which are small ball dollars, can very easily be accomplished and is accomplished through local PACs and local coalitions of charter leaders that can stay on top of these elections. It's also for us incredibly important in this last electoral cycle to remember that it's not just the state house that's important, but also county boards of education, um, uh, the supervisors. Uh, when in the negotiation of the 2019 um, uh, uh, legislative session, our appeal rights got curbed. That raised the stakes and the importance of counties. And frankly, labor doesn't have nearly as much traction in those levels than they do in local districts where we seem to be playing this game of Groundhog Day of electing and re-electing boards then when their terms end, here goes the fight all over again. So um, we've been targeting purple districts. Uh, I, I'm sure you're going to tell the story, and I, and you can actually tell it better than me, uh, Jed, uh, of, of iLead and, uh, and, and their uh, the, their, their independent parents who were hounding Christy Smith and flipped that election when she tried to go to Congress. Um, it's it's important also to uh, to continue to do good work with Democrats who are social justice Democrats and see the good work that we're doing uh, in the urban center um, and are uh, you know not wanting to stray too far apart from what their what, what their folks need even they are if they are reflexively pro labor. Um, it's just a different layer of deep, deep politics that gets played. And, um, uh, uh, it, you know, the, the, the reality of it is, is we, I'm curious to see what's going to happen post recall. The governor has one more year. Uh, the governor has been instrumental in, uh, in holding the line, uh, because I, I just want to be really clear that they really were out to, to kill us. And even though the line went perhaps further than we'd wa wanted, um, and nonetheless, uh, for the next two legislative cycles, last one and this one, I've been able to say to good effect, we cut the deal. The war is over. No more negative legislation. Um, there is some 
some, you know, uh, uh, some legislation out there trying to curb non-classroom based uh, work that's a leftover from 2019. We're going to do everything we can to continue to print. But, you know, people are worried about jobs, the economy and reopening schools in general. You know, uh, the governor's also concerned on top of this about the recall. Um, uh, our legislature continues to meet via Zoom, you know, uh, it, 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 and not necessarily, you know, taking in-person testimony. These are opportunities. Uh, these are tremendous opportunities. I would absolutely say, and the last thing I'm going to say, sorry, is uh, this is the time for uh, for uh, scaling it up, you know, on retail politics. Uh, legislators aren't doing the travel that they're doing. They're they're dying to meet with constituents. It's much easier to get 50, 100 parents on a Zoom than it is to bust them anywhere. Um, you need to exploit those opportunities and remember that those local relationships and local dollars really matter. All right. That's great. I can see that like my short list of must ask questions, I'm not even going to get to. So um, I'll try to cut to some other things. No, no, no. I, lo I love what you guys are saying. Um, uh, but one for sure is you guys are ahead of the rest of the country in terms of building this political infrastructure. Um, there has been maybe a lack of urgency. Maybe there's been ambivalence, maybe just a, a naivete about how important, you know, this this kind of stuff is. Uh, do you guys have new language for your colleagues in other states um, uh, about the importance of doing this? Would love to just, you know, quickly whip around. Uh, this is that moment to evangelize. Would love to hear whatever your latest, you know, language is about why it's so important that we're all doing this. I'll jump in. Um, you know, when, one of the first conversations that I had with a lawmaker when I got here a couple of years ago was he he basically said, look, um, things have changed for the charter community at the Capitol and you guys do not seem to have internalized the, the political change that has under, that has happened here. And, um, he said, you cannot continue to expect people to take hard votes for you if you are not going to make sure that they come back in their elections. And in that year, that, that, that was in 2018, there were a couple of, you know, big time charter supporters who lost their elections that year. And, you know, we, we were nowhere for them. And, you know, that, um, we will not survive that. We will not, as a community, we will not survive Politics being harder for us, the the National Democratic Coalition falling apart completely for charters, um, we will not survive that in, in any state if we do not make a commitment to making sure that our friends are protected when, when we need them to. Um, you know, yeah. it doesn't matter how many lobbyists we have. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. Right. If our friends don't come back from hard elections, they're not going to keep taking votes for us. Yeah, to follow on Starley's point, um, you know, when we were growing the movement relatively rapidly, we had twin wins at our back. Uh, we had two Chicagoans in D.C., President Obama and Arnie Duncan, who were both talking a lot about what charter public schools accomplished in the city of Chicago. And that gave us a huge halo effect with local legislators. So when Race to the Top happens in 2009, 10, 11, we have this real wind in our back and didn't have to build up advocacy muscle in the same way. Um, but this is politics. Things change, right? And we saw it coming well in advance and prepared around that. Your question, Jed, about what I would say to other state association leaders, I would say it's really a two-step process first. Um, the first thing you've got to realize is that most associations should have as their primary focus advocacy work and goals. Membership support is really important, but it is to the extent it's important because it builds your advocacy ability and muscle, not as a earned revenue model separate and apart from that. And then once you've oriented yourself around advocacy goals, big state legislative wins, city council wins, et cetera, it's a natural progression to move towards political influence and independent expenditure work and some PAC work and donations and kind of bundling campaign contributions, because that is how you can further a lot of the legislative objectives. And if you don't do both those things in tandem, 
you're going to leave out an ingredient that's really necessary to bake the cake. And for us, we've always said that our principal goal at Inks is to create a state and local policy environment that supports the growth and nurturance of great charter schools. That's our goal. It's our single aim. And we can measure ourselves on that. Can we pass a bill? Can we defeat a bill? Can we win a race? Can we get equal funding? Can we secure facilities? Are we part of the capital bill? We're tested every year. And since it's March Madness, I like to look at scoreboards a lot. And I can look at the scoreboard and say, we got equal funding in 2017. We got a 10-year renewal term in 2018. We got capital bill inclusion in 2019. So now what's the question? Can I defeat this, this bill I've got right now trying to change our governance model? I hope so. And we'll see. Because that's every year the challenge we have to create the environment where our member schools can grow and thrive. Amen, brother. <laughs> um, Mirna, turn to my sister. Take it. What, what's uh, what, anything you would be saying to colleagues in other states about the necessity of starting this this work or accelerating it? I, I don't know that I could add anything to Starley and Andrew's uh, brilliance here. Um, I would co-sign to everything both of them said. Um, but especially to, to the point uh, uh, that Andrew's making around like the prioritization. Uh, there's no question that, 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 that the movement in general really is um, uh, going through a, a really big uh, transition or an evolution. Um, with that transition comes uncertainty, uh, a North Star, uh, philanthropic shifts. Uh, growth has been the North Star forever. Um, I'll tell you one of the things that I'm really worried, like at a, at a 100,000 foot level, this, this, this coalition uh, that's pushing against testing, that's pushing against the notion of performance. Um, I, I, perhaps I'm bec I've become too paranoid, but uh, it certainly feels like when you couple that discourse, right, around we're over-testing, it's too narrow, it's too this, uh, and, and a push against that, right? When, and also, you know, our opponents have relentlessly messaged that our success comes at somebody else's expense, right? And that that expense is material, it's measurable, and it's inequitable and unjust. Um, and and, and I, it, no matter what academic studies come out to nuance the question, that headline in the public's mind uh, is incredibly difficult to move, right? So what happens if the national political discourse continues to move around uh, prioritizing the needs of, 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 of vulnerable students and at what expense, right? And then we move the conversation around performance. What is the singular North Star position that charter schools can continue to do? And I, I, I would posit that that requires a different politics, a different broader thinking for us. I do believe that the day of innovation really is a, is, 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 is a challenge for us. With all of this question of blended learning and hybrids, I don't believe that we're going to just magically go back to the fall like the way things were in 2019. How does that open an opportunity for us to really transform and finally break that that shackling that 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 uh, that has plagued us for so long between butts and seats and mastery, right? And getting in the way of of these innovative modes. And we know how to do it, and we know how to do it well. Um, uh, at, at a grander level, I think we need to think about how do we infuse innovation into the in, 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 into the discourse, into the politics, into the things that we enable our schools to do, recognizing that our primary role has to be and will forever need to be um, uh, advocacy first. Um, uh, but to me, uh, if we lose playing uh, the opportunities to play offense and broaden the discourse about why charters uh, or to just continue to anchor on growth um, uh, and not expand beyond that, then, then I believe we're, we're, we're going to be slow to react and respond uh, appropriately to a, a very changed and, and evolved dynamics. So I have two more questions. I don't know if we can get to both of them. Now, now I'm like going to, you know, switch the order of them because of what Mirna just said. I'll, and I'll hope that we have, maybe, maybe we can go an hour and two minutes. I don't know, whatever. We'll see here. Um, let's switch, because I'll, I'll switch them. What is the policy agenda that we need now to drive the kind of narrative that Myrna is talking about. This is one of the things I've been just broken recording here at 
at Charter Folk. I think that our old historical things are still right for us to be fighting for facilities, funding, freedom. Okay, that, we got to keep doing that, of course. But in terms of driving a narrative that is going to position our movement for the long term, I think there are new things that we have to be doing. Uh, would love to hear your guys. Uh, and that, that is, by the way, a red state phenomenon as much as it is a blue state phenomenon, because I have met with legislators in unnamed red state that told me, hey, look, I'm willing to do anything for you, but you guys keep coming back and asking me to do the same thing that you asked me to do a decade ago. And you're complaining about our narrative. What's the narrative? What's different? What's the vision here, right? So anything you guys wanna throw in here about whether you know something new is needed and any specific ideas you might have about what that agenda might be? Yeah, I've gotten an example I'd like to bring up, Jed. Um, so we did an analysis in Chicago of enrollment patterns over time a couple of years ago, where we looked at all the students that attended schools they weren't zoned for and what the effect of that migration was. And this is a cross-school type. This included charter public schools and military schools and magnet schools and theme schools. And what we found out, much to our surprise, was that fully 75% of high school students attending the Chicago public schools were attending a school they weren't zoned for. And that of those moving, 97% went from a lower performing school to a higher performing school. Now, charters were a large part of that story, but they weren't the whole story, right? And so this, this idea that charters have citywide enrollment zones and can attend any school in the city but the rest of the city has these narrowly drawn attendance zones, suggests to me that if more students are benefiting by open enrollment, why don't we have the charter flexibility model where you can choose the best school, extend to all public schools in the city, the benefit to students is really unassailable, and you'd wind up having outcomes we'd like to see more broadly distributed. So I think there are plenty of examples like that where charter innovation can spread beyond the walls of charter schools and be a lesson for a district in terms of how they organize and structure the delivery of education. Andrew, have you been able to get traction on that with lawmakers? Like we 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 tried to we've tried to put that on our agenda this year and lawmakers like our most progressive Democrats, our most conservative Republicans and everywhere in between was like, oh hell no, I am not touching that with the 10 foot pole. Have you been able to get anybody to do it? Uh, not with legislators. Uh, we work through and with the district CEOs and school boards. Mm -hmm. We've had some interest there, but as you all know, when you start touching attendance zone, decision-making, the implications in terms of property values, assumptions about race, class, ethnicity, et cetera, are so volatile, yeah. it's hard to have a frank discussion. That's why what we did is said, look, this isn't even a charter study. This is just saying, the average student who moves from their zone school to a different school goes up two ranking points in our school quality rating policy. That's just a fact. So how do we do more of that and empower parents to make these decisions? State law might not need to change even. A district can decide to do that. But there's enormous pushback because it's challenging a very embedded status quo idea that I live here and therefore I have a right that's inviolate to go to this school. Well, that may work for some people. But as we've seen in the charter movement, it doesn't work for a large number of people who have no access to high-performance schools unless they go outside their zone. Yeah, I mean, I think this is like one of the really interesting issues, I, Jed, you know, that, that you raise. And I know you and I have had a little bit of a debate about this, um, you know, sometimes. Like the, the problem to me is that, um, you know, polling shows us nationally from a long time ago and from, you know, recently that if people feel like programs are targeted to some kids and not other kids, they have less support, right? Um, and that, that's for sort of school choice programs broadly, but including charter schools. Like one of the problems that we have is this this um, narrative that Myrna mentioned that that our success comes at the expense of someone else. And so if we keep otherizing ourselves and our kids and we don't talk about all kids benefiting, I don't know how we I don't know how we win. And I mean, obviously, you look nationally and in most states, the the 
the demographic profile of the kids in charters, you know, is what it is. It's there, you know, we are largely focused on low income children of color across the country. That is not the case in every state though, right? I'm, I'm from Arizona and, you know, that is not, that's not what the charter community looks like in Arizona. And so if we make, if we make, you know, suburban schools that, um, you know, where, where their demographics are, are largely, um, you know, middle-class white kids, a pariah within our own movement, that, that creates problems for us. It creates problems for us with suburban lawmakers. So we can't, we just, there's like this, tension about about this narrative issue that is really hard to resolve, I think. Mary, any, any additional thoughts? No, I just uh, uh, I completely agree with with Starley that it's it's a difficult needle to thread. I do believe that it, we'll see what happens, right? Uh, I think we're, we're going to see a lot of things um, really change. Um, LA Unified, for example, can't seem to find 14,000 students. Um, uh, there's a lot, there's massive enrollment loss across California. It's, they're not necessarily coming to charters. Uh, by the way, the, the California movement just hit at the 700,000 uh, mark uh, in enrollment, but that wasn't still a massive, you know, dramatic increase, which is all what all districts were worried about what happened. Um, but it'll be very interesting to see whether this enrollment loss is just a a, a, a feature of um, kindergartens delaying kindergartners uh, delaying entrance the, tra the the transition points if families are actually moving to Texas or Arizona or were they just in a vacation home in Tahoe um, uh, and I'm talking about the, dis the, the 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 system at large what is the impact going to be to privates and to um, non-classroom-based schools that I, I, I don't have a great predictor of, of what's going to happen when things begin to come back to normal. But I do know certain things and just, you know, this some a little bit of a window. I do know that we are facing a massive wave of retirement of teachers. This year, the pandemic has been, well, it's been more than a year now, has been absolutely brutal in the teaching profession. We have both challenges and opportunities in terms of di diversifying the educator workforce. Um, the schools that have been best positioned to navigate the, 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 the rigors of the pandemic have been those that have been incredibly flexible in their staffing models and sending in, you know, counselors and other mental health professionals, uh, paraprofessionals uh, to to play supporting roles in distance learning and the, the manning of tech pods. Um, it could potentially be. Uh, it, the, the state may very well force be forced to expand charter-like uh, staffing flexibilities across the entire system uh, because of the the, the simple uh, challenges of, of of the workforce and what the pandemic in the next year may may bring. Um, that could be some opportunities. Uh, it made me think of you, Jed, uh, when, when I hear folks in policy circles talking about the staffing flexibilities and making charters or rather uh, uh, traditional district schools, you know, unshackle them from some of the, the bureaucratic burdens in the traditional ways in which things have been done in a way that will be more charter-like. Um, and uh, I do believe that there's there, there will be some opportunities for us to play a leading role in showing how it can be done and can be done well and making common cause with the alphabet soup, right? With the management groups and others who are trying to solve for the same thing and still stay tacked and anchored to that all kids message, but using our lessons and our flexibility and our need, we're going to face the same thing as well. You know, those staffing concerns are are, are going to hit us as well. Perhaps not as as, as much as uh, the traditional uh, uh, system, but for sure, you know, we're, 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 we're going to see a massive tectonic shift um, come fall, uh, both on enrollment and staffing and how do we account for learning and whether families are going to be wanting to re-sign up for the, the choices that they had made before. That's great. Can you, can I indulge you? Can you guys indulge me like four more minutes? We're going to go over this hour, but I, I have to ask this last question. All right. Which is because um, uh, I think it's, it's central to everything that we're, we've been talking about, which I've been calling it 25 by 25 by 25. Can we get 25 States? 
that you know will be charging $25 per student in membership dues by 2025, releasing tens of millions of dollars you know, for charter school advocacy. Um, it all comes in on the C3 side, and I think it gives our C3 organizations the basic capacity that allows them to do that C4 thing. Now, it's maybe too much of a softball, and you guys are going to say, oh, yes, because it's going to benefit your organizations, but can you just tell me, you know, am I right to just keep beating on this drum? Or Wallace, you, you, you don't even understand it. You're so off-putting. Shut up already, or whatever it is. Whatever your recommendations are on, on this 25 by 25 by 25 thing, is it, is it helpful? And, you know, uh, whatever thoughts you might have on it. I'll, I'll jump in on that. Look, you know, I don't know if $25 is the right, is the right dollar, right? For, for every state. Um, um, here, our combined budgets across all of our organizations, the C3, the C4, and the PAC um, is um, basically $7 million, right? And our opponents just on the C3 side, the sort of 15 group uh, anti-charter coalition, their annual budget is $165 million. So even if we were charging $50 a kid, <laughs> we wouldn't be anywhere close to $165 million. So I don't know if, if $25 is, is, uh, is the, 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 ma the magic number. It, it, what I think you're getting at though is more, more, than, um, more than the specific dollar amount is back to what Andrew said. Um, we have to make a shift as a community that the state charter associations, like, yes, we can do some good PD and some, you know, create some training opportunities and help source vendors and all of those kinds of things. But like, if that's at this point in our life cycle as a, as a movement nationwide, if that's what you're relying on your charter association to do, and it's not to protect you at your state capital, you are, you, 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 you are directing your association to work on something that is not their highest and best value for you. And if we're not making an investment in advocacy, and if we're not committed to that as our number one priority, um, we we won't win. Um, and and so whatever the dollar amount is, right? It, it's more. I think we need to just get everyone aligned around this idea that this is the number one thing. There's nothing more important to this movement than making sure that we can effectively fight and we cannot effectively fight with zero dollars. Anything else you want to throw in, Andrew or Myrna? Yeah, I just add that it's really a question of fiscal sustainability and economic model for charter associations. And provided you can have sufficient revenues to run a robust organization, hire the staff you need, and not worry about the next earned revenue model that you're going to try to develop. And you can focus your time and attention on your highest use of advocacy wins. And I don't care if it's $25, $50, or $10. Now, I do believe skin of the game matters. And I do believe there's a moment of clarity when you send that dues notice out and the school has to say, yes, I'm sending a check of $30,000 to the network because I think they do great work. If you don't have that endorsement and they're not willing to do that, then you've got to be introspective about that and say, what is it about my work that isn't translating to passion to support these? We've had good success supporting inks over the years and we've been steadily increasing our dues and that'll, that'll continue. Um, so I, I like the direction of what you're describing, 25 by 25 by 25. I think each seat has to decide where they are, but the goal should be fiscal sustainability and an economic model that permits you to do the work that's most important for the movement. Myrna, final word. Again, can't add anything that's of different or greater value than what my colleagues here have said. Completely agree. And I would just say, you know, focus is incredibly important. And focus sometimes mean a narrowing of the things that you can do. Um, uh, we, it, around CCSA, you know, uh, a, a phrase we keep uh, 
perhaps overusing internally as we analyze every single action is the member value proposition. Um, how does this continue to, how does this contribute to the MVP? The MVPs are the members and how that's defined is by bringing home the wins, uh, whether it's in local advocacy, you know, with, with districts that we're constantly finding uh, authorizers, especially in like the mega districts like LA Unified and Oakland, and political fights are almost more, um, uh, more uh, violent than than in the capital, uh, but the capital <laughs> wins are incredibly important there as well. And uh, it, it, I completely agree. You know, it's it's a question of prioritization, a focus, and absolute clarity about why we are there to do it. And, and skin in the game is is important. You know, back in when 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 I learned organizing in Texas, um, you know, uh, my mentor always talked about like you know making sure that people felt the sense of agency and investment. And the opposite of that is learn helplessness. Right. You know, when 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 people expect you to fix everything and sometimes you're not the best position to do um, uh, that particular work. Uh, this is an all of us work and it's not a failure of the associations to not do everything for everybody. Um, but I certainly would feel like, you know, it's it, it's it would be a failure of all of us together of understanding the gravity and the potential of the moment. If we don't all understand what our respective role is to play. And, and staying aligned uh, and together on, in, in, through this moment. All the movements, politi politics, it all runs on a pendulum, right? And uh, and I'm not sure yet how far and to in, in which direction the pendulum will swing, but I do know that we are in the middle of a pendulum swing. And, uh, you know, we better ride the wrecking ball. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. Well, listen, um you know, Mirna, I introduced you in the beginning. You know, I, I, I was Dorothy, you know, and, you know, you were these, all three of these characters I may have met. If we think of, you know, charter school advocacy strength as Dorothy, right? Um, you know, the, our Dorothy has met, you know, three incredible characters in Starley and Mirna and Andrew, you know, and the fact that you guys are linking arms together, you know, you are going to put our movement in a far stronger position and you are going to help us you know get to that emerald city so i just feel incredible uh, gratitude for everything that you guys are doing i feel great gratitude for you guys you know spending a part of, you know an hour or a little bit more with us today um and just keep going and if there's anything that you know charter folk or i personally can be doing to help you guys beat on me mercilessly um, your work is as important as anything that's happening in our movement today so thank you so much Thanks, Jed. Thanks, everybody. Thanks, Jed. Good to be with you. Thank you.